Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 36. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and today's guest is a very exciting new performer on the scene, Mr. Jeff Marsh. He was the People's Choice winner at the IJ Festival in 2016. And speaking of IJ, let's thank them as our main sponsor. And you can thank them by going to juggle.org to learn more about this great organization. Let's thank me by visiting my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. If you have coaching needs, if you're a performer, if you want to become a performer, give me a call. I can help you at braindrizzles.com. All right, let's keep this one short because I'm really excited about presenting to you the new talents at the IJ, the People's Choice winner, Mr. Jeff Marsh. Welcome to the Drop Everything podcast. A personal friend who I met recently uh, for the first time, I believe, at the IJ Festival in El Paso. A big welcome to Jeff Marsh. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Dan. How you doing? And you're at a Renaissance Fair right now. There's some background noise. Uh, what fair are you at? I'm at the New York Renaissance Fair, just 45 minutes northwest of Manhattan. And is that a uh, multiple weekends? How many weekends is the New York Renaissance Fair? That's a nine-weekend Renaissance Fair, and it's on the old botanical gardens. Now, at a Renaissance Fair, you only work on the weekends and holidays, so you have the whole week free. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we got five days off in most cases. Before we get into the Renaissance Fair, because we're going to talk more about that circuit in particular, let's start with what your moniker is. I like what people sort of title themselves or call themselves. Some people are like action stunt theater or or comedy explosion. You call yourself the last vaudevillian circus tycoon. What does that name mean to you? The last vaudevillian circus tycoon. Well, you know, it, it just as any moniker would, it'd be one of the best ways you can describe someone. I uh, have taken my path in circus and variety and street performing in so many different avenues that uh, I feel that I'm uh, very kind of happy of being maybe a pioneer in a way of being able to help performers not only get good in performing, but the business side of it as well, too. Is that what the word tycoon means to you? The fact that you're an entrepreneur as well as a performer? Yeah, going down many different ideas and avenues. Yeah, definitely. Last vaudevillian, do you sort of look at the vaudeville period as sort of a, a period that you, that you look at and think of fondly? Oh, definitely. And, and vaudeville's making a comeback for sure, especially with the cabaret burlesque scene going on in all these cities today. And it's very nice to see a, a resurgence in that uh, type of constant vaudeville variety type of acts. And some people think that the Renaissance Fairs is sort of the new vaudeville because there are so many variety performers. Yeah, in a sense, there's so many different types of uh, acts. You know, unlike a vaudeville, which was you'd have like a five-minute act, three to five-minute act. Out here, we have 30 to 45-minute stage slots, which is nice. And do you share a stage with one other performer, or do you have your own stage there, or how does that work? Sometimes we got to share a stage with two, three, or even more other performers. You get a really nice stage if you could just share it with one other group or one other person, which is really nice. And every now and then you get that. Yeah, because you have to set up and tear down after every show. And is that part of your time that you have? What's your overall slot time for your show there? I get a 45-minute time slot. So in that 45 minutes, is that also set up and tear down and pass the hat and everything? Yeah, but, you know, you, you just push your props to the side, reset for the next show. You do about four shows a day, eight shows a weekend, scheduled. So eight shows a weekend. Now, if you look at the street show format, you start with some hawking, right? You start by trying to gather the crowd. But you have stages, you have benches. Is there is there amplification at the fairs? 
A lot of fairs are now switching over to amplification. A lot of times they were uh, very pertinent on not having any amplification to ruin the Renaissance element. But nowadays, every fair is turning into like a fantasy fair. So not just Renaissance people are invited, but cosplayers and steampunk and all sorts of different realms. It always struck me so funny, like when we did the fairs, that's how me and Barry started years ago our first three or four seasons we did Renaissance fairs, that they would have things like yield Coca-Cola or yield picture taken day. Or uh, Lady Visa and MasterCard. Yes, yes. We accept Lady Visa, Lady Visa and Sir MasterCard. Yes. But then sometimes when they came to your show, there were some things they were kind of picky about. I remember one time they said to us, they said, don't say wow, say Zoom. <laughs> Uh, I don't think much fairs are really persnickety about what people are saying in their stage shows these days. You know, I know a performer, uh, Jeffrey Cobb, he's in his contract on his writer. He says, I will help you portray your 16th century Elizabethan country, but I will not be telling my jokes in that accent to help convey comedy. Yeah, we always found that if you had the accent and you can kind of, they, they, people liked the sort of modern references, as long as you did them in a tongue-in-cheek way. Lords and ladies, how are you doing today? Who drove in their luxury automobile? You know, whatever, you're, as long as you had that feeling of being Elizabethan. Yeah. Oh, did you hear uh, the Joust is doing a tribute to Prince? Yeah. All the horses have purple reins. Ah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, a little, yeah. little sample of the Jeff Marsh humor. <laughs> purple rain. But they do have at the, uh, a lot of these fairs, they do have jousting, actual jousting. Oh, and it's intense. These guys get hit by lances, knocked off horses. They're, they're, they're extreme entertainers. Yeah, much more difficult than the juggler's job. But even though, but juggling at the Renaissance Fair can be very difficult because there are a lot of elements. It definitely attracts a rowdy crowd. There's also 18 other jugglers at the fair. Yeah, they tend to go pretty heavy <laughs> on the juggling acts, exactly. So yeah. to stand apart, do you find it's difficult to stand apart or do people say like, oh my God, not another juggler? It's so hard in this business to be original. And that's what Renaissance fairs do. In a way, there's a lot of stock material that's floating around this area and everybody's telling jokes that are in the know. But to be able to stand out and be different really sets you apart and people do notice it. Well, you have some different tricks. There's one that I've always liked that I've never seen done the way you do it, which is I would call a big trick. It's like a, let me see if I got this right. You have a pole, a broom, a basin, and there's something else as well. It's all spinning on top. Can you, can you describe that trick I'm, I'm talking about? It's a spinning washtub, chair, and broom. The washtub is about 17 gallons. The chair is diagonally balanced upon the bristles of the broom. And then the bottom of the uh, broom handle is balanced upon my chin. And the whole thing yeah. spins. The, the basin is spinning on the very top. It's a gyroscopic type of juggling technique, yes. And how much does that whole thing weigh? Because that, that basin, like you're saying 17, is it, you're saying 17 pounds is the weight of the basin? That's a 17-gallon wash tub. So the whole thing weighs about 28 pounds on my face. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So th is, that, is that your finale trick, or is that just something you do in the, in the body of your show? That is my finale trick. I got the original idea from Paul Cincavelli, mm -hmm. who was a pioneer of our juggling time, uh, turn of the century. They say that he probably was one of the first uh, Harry Houdini status of jugglers. Yeah, people just used to say that if someone was trying something fancy, the same with Rastelli, they say, who, who do you think you are, Rastelli? Or who are you right. trying to be, Shinkavelli? So right. in those days, we did have a couple of, uh, not maybe worldwide, but definitely known jugglers, uh, especially Shinkavelli and Rastelli were two of the biggest. Yeah, I was doing a, a smaller version of that trick, which was inspired by Charlie Fry. 
mm-hmm. who would have the two knives and a spinning plate on top of that while the knife would spin on the inside. So while, while the, the knife on the inside is being suspended by the spinning plate up on top, mm, okay. which is a smaller version of that big trick. Yeah, it's quite so. a big trick. And another thing that Shinkavelli used to do is he would spin the, the basin on top of a pole and he'd wear a spiked helmet. And he'd knock out the pole and this very heavy basin would fall five or six feet to be caught on, spinning on the spike on his head. He was also able to take a fork and a knife and throw a potato in the air, chop the potato in half, and stab each piece with the fork and knife. There are quite a few. There's another one that said he could throw up a chalkboard and with a piece of chalk write the letter A before it hit the ground. Wow. <laughs> so if people haven't read up on Paul Cinquevelli, he's a very interesting and fascinating character. And in fact, one of the tricks I do was inspired by a Cinquevelli trick where he would juggle a, I think I talked about this on the last podcast, in the article he would juggle a turnip, a fork, and a knife in one hand and hold a blowgun to the mouth with the other hand and then shoot the turnip with a a dart, hit it with the fork, and then catch it on the knife. Wow. So Shinko Belli, a lot of these tricks that people used to do can be updated successfully and are very successful with the modern audiences. Definitely. Uh, the, The bar these days is so low. You imagine what people are doing for just a straight-up unicycle finale or anything, anything that would kind of give you height in that sense. Yeah. You know, there's some elements that make a really good street show, and having something big, having something tall, having something very visual like that is always good. And the finale is so important because if you go to a street festival, sometimes they ask you, what is your finale? Simply because so many people have the same finales nowadays. Right. So if you have a unique trick, if you go like, oh, my finale is I juggle torches on a, a nine-foot unicycle or my finale is a straitjacket escape, you might run into more competition than if your finale is this big, giant balance. Uh, yeah, I would like to imagine calling it the world's largest gyroscope, unofficially. Hmm, okay. <laughs> unofficially, because you don't want to get sued by the, by the gyroscope community. I also don't want to go to the effort in getting a world record in anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so you do a lot of street performing, but at the fairs, People don't realize a lot of the performers are not working just for the hat, but they're also being paid a salary as well. Yes, that is very true. But it also is not, in a sense. Uh, my first year working Renaissance fairs, I worked for free. They would not be able to pay me. I could only pass the hat. And then the next year, they were able to offer just a little bit, and you eventually get up year after year. If you go in there as a performer already with material and you've worked fairs before, you'd be more likely to be paid a salary than just being able to offer to pass the hat as an audition to see how you do. The Renaissance Fairs, they're a good place to start because you said, like, the idea is you can get in there in the first year or so as a beginner and offer just to pass the hat. Right. But to actually do well in the circuit, you got to stick it out. you got to show them that you're serious. And it might take a, t- a couple of years to actually build a rep in that, in that world, right? Unless you have a show already, unless you have an act. Right, right. Uh, Aaron Bonk has recently started coming on to Renaissance Fairs, and he has a fire whip and sword show. Mm-hmm. And he's coming out, and there's another guy, uh, Adam Crack, who does uh, Wild West world record and whip cracking and stuff. So, in a sense, there's like, you know, Adam was the whip guy at fairs, and before him, it was Don Juan and Miguel. Right. So, in a way, that there's, there's a changing of the guard at this point where all these new acts are coming in to fairs because people never knew that this avenue really existed. And it's really nice to see that there's. Some performers, like Aaron here, getting treated nice. Like, they put him up on one of the stages. They gave him housing. And that's never happened to me. I've always had to 
I've always had to provide my own housing. And other times they're able to fly them in for a guest weekend to see to audition them, see if they want to keep them or not. So they're willing to go a little bit outside of their comfort zone of just scraping the bottom of the barrel and actually asking decent touring acts to perform there, like Kamikaze Fireflies and a lot of brand new up-and-coming people coming up these days. So it's really nice to see the variety coming in. Well, like you say, there's two different ways to go about it. Like you can go in there as a rank beginner. Say, look, I want to be in the juggling school or teach juggling or be in the path or just sort of juggle on the on the streets, try to do a little show. I don't, I don't want any pay, but I will pass the hat. And they'll give you a space like on a path. When we started, we had a place called The Crane, which was our own area, The Crane. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, we have our own area. But when we got out there, it was basically just this wooden crane in a big empty field. And we had to attract people. And some of the stages there are beautiful. What do you think the biggest audience at a renaissance fair stage can hold oh you you could easily get over a thousand five hundred people in minnesota uh, and in texas those are the two largest fairs arizona you can pull in at least 800 to uh maybe even more in one small in one of their uh, larger stages and their smaller stages you can probably pull anywhere from two to three hundred people in the smallest of stages you can pull in a dozen i'm sorry i missed that you could pull in what uh, but just a dozen, just a dozen people in some of these very small venues that some of the fairs have. So they have these larger stages that you practically have to wait for someone to die to mm. even be able to get on. Yeah. And then you have the joust field, which is its own entity, or the birds of prey, which is its own entity, and has, it can fit in like uh, 800 to 1,000 people. And sometimes you can get really nice venues, but for the most part, you're looking anywhere from two to 500 on an average audience if you're doing a straight-up juggling or variety show. And the thing about fairs is that a lot of people don't realize is that it's basically dirt and hay to some degree. Dirt and hay. I mean, there's also a lot of permanent loca- permanent buildings. I wouldn't say it's all dirt and hay. You know, as you would say, a mud show, like a traveling circus mud show, as you they put it, you know, set up in a dirt mud lot and put up a ring. Right. You know, Renaissance fairs at, nowadays have been carved out for the past 25 to even 50 years. So some of these fairs have been here so long that they've expanded and created these beautiful woods walk areas with uh, rolling grass hills and beautiful picnic areas. And like in New York here, it's on an old botanical garden once owned by the Queen of Denmark, gifted to New York. And they had a dolphin show here. And it's not set up like a regular Renaissance fair. It's like windy paths and they have like, some fairs are paved and some are not. Not necessarily just a stigma of just being in dirt and mud all the time. I guess that's my experience. I'm looking back like 20, seven or 28 years ago. So I remember the last fair we ever did, we actually did, uh, Texas was the last one we did uh, for the full, we came back for a weekend in Minnesota, but Texas was the last time we did a full run at a Renaissance fair. And it seemed like it rained every weekend and the fair had turned into a muddy, and at that point, at that point, they used a lot of hay bales for the seats. I think now they have more, like, more like benches, like wooden benches. Mm-hmm. But back in that day, they used lots of hay bales for the for the seating. So when that place got wet, between the mud and the hay, it was it was a bad scene. And you're going to get that. We're all living outside. Yes. Literally, literally, we're camping. A lot of Rennies out here own RVs, and a lot of, and large majority of them are just living in tents. So you got to be able to tough it out in a way or another. It's like that Glastonbury Festival. I thought about going there, but every year it seems like it turns into a giant mud pit. And right. I just don't know if I'm used to, if I'm ready to rough it again like that, because there is a... There is a bit of roughing in the Renaissance circuit. You know, you can you can always still go out, perform for the people that are there, and you're going to get a better show than you would with a packed house, though. 
Like on a rainy day, you have some hardcore. It's rain or shine, showtime. The yeah. fair is open. Very rarely I've ever seen a fair close on a rainy day. But the people who are there sitting in the rain wanting to watch your show, you'll have better experiences doing that show than you would do in your regular show. And you'll probably get tipped just as much as you would with a full crowd. Well, it's funny about street performing, and I, maybe I've said this before, but I always think of street performing like as surfing. Like if you look at like a hobby like surfing, where some days you go out there and it's perfect. Like the waves are perfect. There's no competition. You're riding every wave. You're surfing fantastic. It's the best thing ever. So for me, like a street performance, when you have the right situation, is really one of the best ways to perform ever. But just like surfing, there are some days where the waves are flat, where there's no waves, there's no people, or the environment is bad, or there's lots of competition, or the weather is bad. But we keep coming back day after day looking for those perfect days, looking for those perfect waves. There's something about mm -hmm. it that gets into our, into our system. Even myself, getting towards the end of my career, who've done lots of indoor work, lots of paid work, there's still something, something about passing the hat that is its own thing. It's its own vibe. It's its own world. It's, it, it's a different type of performing. It's a different type of formula, especially trying to keep an audience there compared to an audience which is sitting down already. But you didn't start as a juggler in the busking world. You actually started as a, a hacky sack player. But you found out there yeah. were some difficulties in that, in being a hacky sack player on the street. Yeah, I was uh, 18 years old, and I wanted to go find out more about my mom's uh, heritage in Ireland and visit my grandma. And I went to go visit her. And uh, when I went to London chasing a cute French girl I met the night before, hmm. I spent a lot of money in the bars realizing it wasn't it was $2 to the American dollar. I ended up being broke three-quarters through my three-month trip. So when I came back to uh, the realization that I didn't have any money, I thought, well, all I could do is hacky sack and skateboard. So I played hacky sack. I made about 80 euro in two hours. And I thought, this is amazing. So I went back to Ireland, went down to Grafton Street, and I started playing hacky sack. And old ladies are coming up and saying, oh, you're wonderful. And young kids saying, oh, you should join the team. I go, what team? He says, the, the football team. I'll give you a straightener. I said, <laughs> I said, what's a straightener? He says, straight across your face. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so I went back to New Orleans where my dad was living at the time because the Garda, uh, which is the police in Ireland, saw me hacky sacking without a shirt on. Mm. And I say, oi, put your clothes on. You look bloody undecent. And I go, all right. And I said, let's look at your passport. And I was already a week over my visa uh. stay. Yeah, yeah. So they said, either we pay for you to leave and you're barred from Ireland or you make your own way. And in three days, I made enough money to buy a plane ticket home just playing hacky sack. But you found out that a hacky sack was, was too physically demanding, right? That the next day you'd wake up and you'd be like, I can't walk. Instead of doing a, an act, I would do a walk-by act. You know what I'm talking about? Sure. So when, so when you're, you, I would sit there and juggle my ass off until someone put a dollar in my hat and i show them a couple tricks. But I'd continue to keep juggling like the entire time. Yeah. I had another idea where I'd uh, hand two audience members like little bubble containers, like the wedding bubbles you get. Yeah. And they'd blow bubbles and people would see it down the street. But I would get so exhausted, my girlfriend would have to help me, like let me sling my arm over her while we went home. It was just really, really physically demanding, both on my knees and my feet. Well, that's what people, like you're saying, this idea of a walk-by act. Some people think juggling on the street is basically like you put a hat out and you just juggle. And then people walk by and hopefully you try to attract some attention or they stop for a few minutes or a few seconds and watch for a bit. But that's people just keep walking in a transitory fashion as opposed to a circle show where you try to develop the circle, build the crowd and pass the hat at the end.
Yeah, and it could be the range from 30 to 45 minutes to even an hour-long show as a circle pitch. Yeah, but we, we learned pretty quickly that the circle pitch performers make a lot more than the walk-by performers. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, imagine hacky sacking for four or five hours straight. Yeah, you'd be in good <laughs> <Yeah>. shape. <laughs> you'd, you'd probably want to take your shirt off because you probably got pretty hot, but then you'd be undecent and uh, yeah. get kicked quickly, out of Ireland. I quickly, quickly, I learned how to juggle after that. <laughs> but you didn't grow up, yeah. grow up in New Orleans. Let's, let's, let's go way back to the, the beginning of the Jeff Marsh story. Where did you grow up and what was your family life like, brothers and sisters, and what did your parents do? I grew up in San Diego. Oh. I was born in Eureka Humboldt, grew up in San Diego like 13 years of my life, and then I went to culinary school in San Francisco later on in my life. When I was a kid, my dad was into management, so he managed like a radio shack, so he always came home, he brought these cool toys. He started managing restaurants, country clubs, and yacht clubs, and I thought, well, that's kidding. interesting. I'd love to be a cook, because my mom would never let me use the oven as a kid. Hmm. So I asked my dad for a job, and he gave me a job in all these kitchens that he was working at. So I spent a lot of time working in kitchens, and in that time, my brothers and I, we got really into computers and video games, just as any one other kid. But it got to the point where my brothers and I would fight being on the computer on all the time. So I said, screw this, I'm going outside to play, <laughs> which I started, I started playing hacky sack and skateboarding everywhere. And I started uh, traveling around my hometown, and I started realizing I'd stay out later and later at night, and I'd see kind of like the, the street urchins and the, the home bums and the travel people coming through my little town. And I just hear stories about where they're going, things they're doing. And I see traveling musicians come to the coffee shop that I'd hang out at. Before I asked my dad for a job, I was, you know, he would never give me any money or allowance. I, I would always either panhandle or tell jokes to try to make money at like the local, you know, movie theater. And, you know, in, in a way, just kind of swindle and con people here and there. And then I realized after years of juggling and performing years and years later that I was happier doing what I love doing and I'm making more money having something to offer than just begging. Hmm. So my mom's a, a nurse in surgery, so she was uh, always ca super cautious about what I was doing, places I was going. I was like, what are you doing, Jeff? I'm like, well, I'm hanging out with the street urchins in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. She, oh, oh, right, Jeff, right. It's kind of like a punk rock hippie kind of up upbringing in a way or another, but I just wanted to leave. I wanted to be a professional bum. I wanted to be homeless. There you go. <laughs> well, yeah. you got to set your sights <laughs> high, I guess, a professional bum. But where, when did juggling first make its appearance? When did you first see juggling and how did that strike you? Oh, my mom juggled. Oh. And yeah, we were out back and we were playing with these hockey uh, pucks. And she picked up three of them and just started juggling them. And it just, it kind of stuck with me really hard. And then when I went to Ireland, I chased that French girl to London. And I saw a guy on a five-foot unicycle juggling four knives. Mm. And I was like, this is pretty amazing. My jaw kind of dropped and a little light bulb clicked on my head. When I went back to New Orleans to play hacky sack and make money, I only made $4 in six hours. So you're <laughs> like, I was okay, like, I got to get something going on here, right? I got, I got to get something going on. And then as I was hacky sacking and struggling at the same time, I started getting really into like just kicking the ball around and just incorporating both hacky sack and juggling. And one day in New Orleans, uh, Harry Anderson walks by me and he said, kid, you have talent. But you need an act. So we brought... Let's stop for a second, though. Let's say who Harry Anderson is. Okay. For the people who don't know, Harry Anderson, he started as a magician, uh, had worked Renaissance fairs, worked the streets, became very successful as a sitcom actor on a show called Night Court. It was a star of his own sitcom for many years and became quite well-known, quite successful. And now he's out in New Orleans. He, that's where he lives, and he runs into you. And 
He sees you have talent. And he brings me to the secret magic shop he has disguised as a laundromat. It's one of the oldest signs in the New Orleans French Quarter. And it's one of the largest you can see. It says laundromat, and all the windows are have newspaper over them. But you open up the double doors, and he's got a little secret front to his magic shop and his studio space in back. And uh, he gave me a couple props and showed me some videos on street performers and sold me a set of billiard balls and taught me some manipulations and kind of got me, like, that little push out the door to like take it further of like oh i can take this further than just being a street kid <laughs> there's, there's there's something else out there other than living this you know because living in new orleans there's very romantic train hopping hobo kind of lifestyle out there but he also gave you some uh, advice about the performings he sort of shared some wisdom about what was really important they have to they have to like you doesn't matter what you do as long as they like you and that was some of the best advice harry anderson gave to me it's interesting because I've been thinking about that recently. I talked about some the idea about street performing. Like, why, why do some people get big tips and other people don't get tips? And a lot of it is, is that the performer wants the audience to like them. But it seems like for tips, sometimes it's important for the audience to want to like the performer in that they want the performer to like them. You know, meaning that they want to give them a tip so the performer will like them. A really good concept to add to that is you should be interested, not interesting. Yeah. But a lot of people, I think, when they give you a big tip, they want to be noticed. The audience wants to be noticed. They want you to be their friend. They want you to like them. And I guess that's a, the other side of the likability, that they want you the same way you'd want to be friends with a celebrity, I guess. Like, how cool would it be to be friends with a celebrity? They want to be friends with the performer. Right. They want to walk up with their friends and say, hey, I know this guy. This, this, I know this person. This is a person that I see all the time. I've seen his show before. He's great. I want to bring you guys to this show now. Well, also, they think you're so cool that they want you to be their friend. Right. And one way they can do that is by giving you a tip that you'll notice and kind of go like, here's a 20 or here's a 50 or here's a 100. So they stand apart. So you get that, they get that certain moment of recognition from you. Because I've seen performers like a Space Cowboy. Do you know a Space Cowboy? Of course. Yeah. And I've seen people, he does the show. And a lot of times you can look at people's show and go like, okay, is their show worth what they seem to be getting from their show? You know, sometimes you see like, why is this guy so successful? It seems like kind of a standard show or, or as good as someone else's show, but they do so much better. So I remember watching him and I saw people line up and they would actually wait to give him money. And normally there's a certain point with street performing, I think, where people only have so much patience to give you money. Like, they won't wait that long. Or like, oh, he already seems to be getting enough without me giving any myself. But when you see people who they'll wait, and they'll wait so they can have that one moment of giving the performer money and getting that one moment of connection with the performer, that's a powerful performer that I see. It's only powerful if the performer notices it, too. If the performer just lets it go... Like someone comes up and hands you like a $10 bill and goes, oh my God, thank you so much. You really changed my life. And the performer goes, oh yeah, they, sure, thanks. And the guy grabs you by the shirt and says, no, I really meant it. <laughs> That's why when you're collecting money, of course, you always keep the jokes going, right? So people know where you're at and you, know, you keep the show going. But you have to acknowledge people, uh, especially the people who tip you well. And speaking about that, just, just to add on to it, what makes a really good show for collecting tips and all you know to, to get more tips is being able to have that solid connection with your audience 
you're not just going up there doing tricks. No. But you have an actual connection. You're breaking that fourth wall. You're having amazing interactions with people. And you don't even know it, but they are adding to the show just by the interactions you're having with them. Well, it's funny. You go out there to the fairs and you see it working in lots of different ways. Like there's, there's guys who do the big shows, who do the big tricks, who are full of energy and who are yelling and just really putting a lot of energy. Then you have a, a fellow like a Magicana, you know, or Sandu Pan, who performs silently at the fairs. Right. And yet is, is on one of the biggest uh, stages in Texas. Right. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. But it, it is something about creating this, I don't know what you'd call it, this sort of uh, desire for the audience to go with you on the journey, no matter what it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of like to imagine it like a roller coaster without seatbelts, and they just have to trust you. Yeah, it's a journey. Like, they don't know where yeah. it's going, but they, they, they yeah. want to be on for the ride. Right. And it's nice with the Renaissance Fairs because you have a captive audience. They're not going anywhere. They're there to be entertained, unlike a street show where you really have to try really hard to keep them there. And you have to go fast, and you have to be moving all the time, and you have to have good transitions to make it flow so nicely. Well, it's the difference between an audience that's transitory. Like they're going from one place to the other, like on, on Fisherman's Wharf. That's a tourist area. They're going someplace. But like Pier 39, there's a stage, there's benches. So they're there to see the show. There's a lot more commitment from them than just being on the street where people can just walk on by. Uh, yeah, like Pier 41, which is the circle pitch. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The Pier 41 is a very, it's a very transitory because people are all standing. There's not even any seats. But when the people are sitting and you're creating more of a show environment, it's definitely easier to hold them than in these transitory situations. Yeah, I kind of, I, I really started getting, getting the idea of the street show down living in San Francisco, watching people on Pier 39. And it was great to see like, you know, uh, Greg Frisbee and there's a guy on there who, uh, uh, a lady who walked on a rope and juggled. Uh, should you walk on a, a pole or a rope? Because there's Mary, Mary, Mary. It was Mary Mary. Yeah, she has a pole that two volunteers hold on their shoulder. That's what it was. She calls it the Evanoff pole. And then I went to uh, see the break dancers on Pier 41, and I'd see uh, the living statues out there. And I was like, oh, this is, this is great. This is like a great place to be street performing. I have to be out here. And uh, I was in culinary school at the time in San Francisco, and I was working three jobs. I was on Haight Street. I was in a bakery in West Portal. And I was doing Craigslist cooking and catering jobs. And I made a two-week paycheck in four hours working around the cable car turnarounds. And every 15 minutes, you had a brand new crowd, a new audience. And I was like, oh, if I do this again, I'm going to quit my job. Mm. And I'm just going to go out and do it. Three days later, I did it again. I quit my job. And that weekend, I can't remember who this guy was. I've been working this cable car turnaround for two years now. He comes out of nowhere juggling five torches and all the cable car turnaround guys go, oh, yeah, his dad used to work the pitch. He came in here. He'd perform it. And I was thinking to myself, like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And that same night I saw for the first time on Pier 41, Sweet Pete. Oh, yeah. And, oh, it blew my mind. I was like, it made me want to rewrite my entire show. I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I can actually put something like um, I can provoke thought. <laughs> into a piece this is amazing I can and I can totally increase my skills from the guy I saw earlier and I was like I have to keep doing this nice so I, I never I didn't know you when you were in San Francisco what years were you were out here in San Francisco I was there when I was 21 uh, I am now 31 so that was 10 years ago 
Yeah, I was there, but I think at that time I wasn't out at the pier. I wasn't really part of the street performing scene. I saw you at the juggling club at the circus center. Oh, okay. not the circus center, the um, the uh, uh, pickle family circus. Yeah, no, it's, it's called the the circus center. It's where they have the clown okay. conservatory. Uh, we used to have a juggling club that met every Sunday night there, but it hasn't hasn't really met there for a long time. So, but I guess I didn't. I did you come up and say hello? Did I was I friendly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we would talk about stuff. We would, oh, okay. you know, I'd, I'd show you some things and. You'd show me some stuff, and uh, I was never good enough as a passer to pass with anybody. But I remember uh, Scotty and Katrina were there, and a couple other uh, jugglers from, from years past. I still see at the IJ this year, so it's really nice to be able to see some of these people year after the years and be able to connect with you. Yeah, yeah. We actually went out to lunch. We had a really nice uh, time together. It was really nice getting to know you. And you did really good at the festival in IJ because you actually won the People's mm -hmm. Choice Award. Uh, it's, that's what I went there to win, really. I was, uh, I'm was i so happy that I got it because it was it, it, ever since I learned of the People's Choice existence was was my goal to get that. Because so. you competed in the competitions and you did not get one of the top three prizes. How, how was that experience for you and what did you think about the competitions for the IGA? Man, I learned more in six months than I have in six years as a juggler. It was really great to push myself and give myself a... a a deadline and a goal and uh you know it wasn't the ten thousand dollars that were on the line sure but but i le i leveled up as a juggler more than i ever have in years and i and i take more out of that experience than i did actually winning the top three prizes because i went in there and i got the prize i wanted but to be able to come back again it makes me think well how am i going to do this better next time mm. and it, and now i'm i was at the brim of my glass with nowhere to go and now the glass is half full again so you're thinking about competing again in Cedar Rapids? Uh, it's up in the air right now. I'm definitely working on some really good tricks right now for some, some good power moves, as you would say. Yes. So. Well, we talked afterwards. I was one of the judges, and we did mm -hmm. talk afterwards about the fact that <laughs> – whatever noise that was. The fact I, I, that uh, – my, my, my boss just ran over a uh, paint can. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a – all right, what was that? Darlene, you all right? <laughs> <laughs> but we did we did talk about the fact that it was a good act, but it wasn't what you would call a competitive act, because it yeah. did lack some of the you you didn't score as good on the difficulty as some of the other performers. But you scored well on the performance elements, the creativity elements, and the audience uh, appreciation elements. But you need to have a little bit more bulky juggling technique. I think it's great that they give you the scores, too, because then you can go back and focus on the things that you can make better. Well, it's, it's a really good system now, because before, what they would have is they would have these discussions. So they had kind of a judging guideline, but it was just more of a guideline. And everybody would go back in the back room and kind of go, just hash it out and kind of discuss what they thought. And it, sometimes it went on 40 minutes or an hour. And at a certain point, people were like just giving in, like, okay. All right, I don't want to argue anymore. Let's put that guy first or third, or and it just seemed very arbitrary, to some degree. And now with the categories, you really can see like, oh, I scored well here, but since I dropped ten times, my execution score hurt me. So you really can see how can I be better next year? What did I score well on? What do I need improvement on? So I think that is very helpful. Right. But you've also competed in the busking competition at the IIJA, and that you did win. Did you win the uh, busking competition of the IIJA, or is that someplace else? 
That was the busking competition of the IJA. What year was that 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 took place? That was three years ago. So 2014, 2013? 2013. 13. What, what city was that in? That was in Bowling Green, Ohio. Bowling Green, Ohio. Now, we're, we're planning to have a, a Buskers Festival next year, a Buskers competition next year. How do you think that went, and what can we do to improve it for, for next year? I was asked to run the busking competition after I won it. Oh, okay. And for the next year, I, was, I did it. I believe it was the next two years I did it. We did it in, uh, we actually had some unfortunate circumstances too due to weather. Mm. Couldn't have a busking competition. Uh, where, was it, where was it last year? It was in... Uh, Quebec, wasn't it? No, not Quebec, the one before that. Purdue? Purdue University. Uh, so we're at Purdue University and we had this perfect street busking pitch marked out. And we were going to have two performers going on at the same time, kind of Key West style. So it's really cl close proximity. And one of the biggest complaints was people wanted to see all the acts. Right. Well, you can't have 12 performers going on at four different pitches in three different rounds. You can't see everything unless you're forced to leave someone's act. Right. Or you choose to leave, or you choose to leave someone's act. So we did the two acts at the same time, which worked out really well. But the problem was it rained out, so we did it inside a, a school gymnasium mm. at, the, at the university. So it wasn't really a street show. The next year, we really got to shine, and we did it in Quebec City. Right. And that, and that is a busking-heavy town, and there are plenty of buskers already who are working in Quebec who did not want to compete in the competition. But one of them did, and he did win. Right. And it wasn't necessarily the best of times because he didn't want to become a member of the IJA and participate in our festival. He just wanted to win the money oh. from the competition. So, and it made us really ponder about what makes uh, uh, judging a busking competition most important. And uh, we factored it on the judges' scores, the audience's choice, and we counted the money. And if I was to do it better next time, I would not constitute, I, I, I would not count the money as such a large, like a third of the score. I, I would probably do a, a percentage less, maybe still count the money, but maybe not. Because just as you said, it's just like surfing. Someday we have great sure. days we can go out. Because I went to Montreal right after the festival. I started doing some street shows. And my first two shows were great. Third show, I invited some friends I met out on the streets to go see it. Oh, it was the worst show I've ever <laughs> done in Canada. Worst one ever. And I was just, the audience was not on my side. And the huge crowd mentality was in play. I was like, this sucks. Two hours later, I had a record-breaking show with a huge audience. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's a bit unfair to count the money. Yeah. It really is unfair to count the money because you can have a really bad day, you can have a really good day, or you're a performer that gauges your entire act on just getting the money. Yeah. Or you follow an act that, that was really big and really cleared everybody out, and you're like, sometimes that same crowd stays. So it's like, oh, now I have to tip the same people. I have to get the same people to give me tips. It's going to be harder than that first guy. Or, or in a way, you're not necessarily cheating, but people are helping you by stuffing your hat with 20s. Yeah, yeah. If if you have like friends or ins or something like that, you know. Yeah, I don't think you, I would count the money. I would have maybe just a judging panel, and and have like a three or four person panel, because like we used to have competitions like in Ireland, like for the street performing world championships, and the problem there was the size of the pitches were so different. Like the winners would always come back the next year and get the biggest pitches, so they would have huge shows and a lot more people could see them. And it's, you know, it's based on a vote, an audience vote in those situations. So if you're seen, seen by 10,000 people, 
and I'm seen by a thousand people, you can't get a fair vote. So I would, right. do, I would do it just on judges, I think. I think diverse judges too, oh, yeah. because you have to have uh, the the way I did it was I had a I had a uh, for each act for each uh, pitch I had three judges I had a ju- I had a juggler, a, a street performer, whether it's juggling music, sure. uh, magic, uh, any realm of street performing, and I'd have a layman, a person who doesn't do any of this stuff. Mm, okay, just yeah, what do you think? Yeah, right. And, and I think what I would also do if I was to do it again next year to just as the teams and individuals competition is throw out the highest and throw out the lowest score. Okay. Well, I guess it depends how many judges you have. You would need to have like five or so, I think, to to make that work, to throw out the highest and lowest. And, you know, I'm festival director next year. So if you want to do the busking competition, I think I'm the person to to talk to. <laughs> I think I want to compete in the competition this year. I hear it's going to be a really good pitch. Yeah, we have it at a farmer's market. And they, they expect about 10,000 people to come to the market. And the community is really into it. So they, they really want to have a street performing festival as part of the farmer's market. So it should be, I'm going to go, I'm doing a site inspection uh, September 6th through the 9th. Yeah, so maybe you come out and compete in the uh, busking competition. Yeah, and this could be a call out for anybody who wants to take the reins and run their own busking competition. <laughs> well, no, definitely, because I will want someone to do it. I was hoping you were going to do it. <laughs> but uh, I guess it's backfired on me because you want to be you want to compete in it. So I'm looking to uh, compete in the IJA, but I, I don't know if I'd have a new piece ready by then. But right. I, a lot of my focus is, is put on towards that. Right. So you might not compete in the seniors again, but definitely come out and compete in the busking tournament. Uh, yeah. Why not? It's always a great thing to participate in these festivals. Oh, yeah. I think that's what really sets it apart because it will push me harder as a performer to get better by the time that happens. And so I won't just stay stagnant with the act I got right now and just do all the same tricks that I keep doing, but I'll just try to find a way to amp it up some more. Well, like you were saying about the competitions, I remember when I used to compete, it gives you a reason to try. It gives you a reason to practice. It gives you this goal, and it's exciting. Because sometimes, like for your own show, you're like, well, you know, I don't have to push myself. I can kind of get by with what I'm doing. But the idea of juggling in front of the jugglers and being in that situation... It's a pretty nerve-wracking thing to be in front of all your peers. Like, here's your time. Here's your eight minutes. All right, go. What do you got? Yeah, it's real interesting you say that because when we're in front of a, a group of strangers, like a thousand strangers, we excel. Sure. When we're nervous, we excel. But when we put ourselves in front of our peers and put our in front of our, our friends even, and like, hey, check out this amazing thing that I've been working on for so long, and we're all looking for that same vote of uh, confirmation that what we're doing is good yeah and it's really nice to have that and especially in this situation you are taking that step out into the uncomfortable zone and you're progressing making yourself better you're analyzing you're critiquing things you're looking things more minute and you become just a, a more involved juggler than you ever have been it's one of the best experiences i've ever had and i recommend it to everybody nice i hope uh hope people listening decide to take part Unfortunately, I do not believe that the prize money will maintain at $10,000. That was a one time. <laughs> what had happened was we have a donor, and uh, the donor had some money that had not been used before, and they decided to roll it into the, the prize money for last year. But I do not believe that money will be available next year. So I think it will go down to maybe, I'm trying to get like 2000 or 2500 to be the top prize. 
which is better than before. It was around you'd basically win about a thousand dollars. Yes, so it'll be a, a big, a big a jump up from what it was, but unfortunately, a big come down from the ten thousand dollar mark. You would think there would have been a lot more people looking to compete at that ten thousand dollars. I think because it was the first year, it, it kind of backfired in some ways, where some people were afraid, like, oh. It's going to be too hard of a year. Like it's going to really attract some really top professionals, and I won't compete because of the of the caliber of competitors it's going to tr- attract. And then now this year, I think a lot of people are saying are regretting not competing, and they, oh, I want to compete next year. They don't realize it was sort of a one and done situation. Right. Yeah. And it's you know, and it, it shouldn't be about the money. No. And even these days, I'm booking gigs that are more life rewarding than monetary these days. So if this is a life-rewarding experience and it will make me a better performer and a better person and when I wake up in the morning and be like, oh, my God, life is great. Right. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm looking for. Not like, oh, my God, I have so much money. What am I going to do with it? Well, it's not always about the money. It's about what do you spend the money on. And, and one thing you spent the money on, which I've always wanted to do, which I've never had the time, was to go to Celebration Barn and actually take some classes. It does cost money to go out there, but they feed you like a king and you're doing eight hours of performance theory, performance devising, even clown theory and mime techniques, as well as this, they offer so many different classes. But yes, it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me was taking Abner the Eccentrics workshop and also taking Karen Montanaro and Davis Robinson's devising workshop, which had a lot of different elements involved to it too. So you're a guy who's always looking to improve, always looking to grow his skills, looking for new challenges looking for exciting new things to do with your life. And you've had a couple of exciting experiences already, including uh, spending some jail time for, <laughs> for performing. Do you mind sharing that story with us? Uh, yeah. I went back to my home pitch where I was a kid. I you know I used to panhandle down in these places, and now I knew how to juggle and do a show. So I went down to Seaport Village in San Diego, and I'm doing a street show out there. And I went into the Port Authority, and I got a free permit, and I went out there. And uh, karma kind of bit me in the butt because uh, this lady who would always yell at me for being so loud, this uh, tarot reader, got a ticket because she didn't have a permit. So I'm kind of laughing at that and called my friend, told him this lady was yelling at me earlier, got a ticket. And the police come by and tell me, I said, my crowd's a little too big. It's covering up the sidewalk. You're going to have to push him back. So the next show, I pushed him back. And I was doing a straitjacket escape at the time where I juggled inside the straitjacket. And one of my first finales was I was hacky sacking inside the straitjacket. Okay. So I do a bunch of hacky sack tricks with my feet. And that was kind of uh, what I was doing. And after, you know, the police kind of waited for me after the act and they gave me a ticket for obstruction of the sidewalk. Right. Which, you know, I guess in the street performing world, that's kind of an honor. The crowd was too big. Sorry about that. So I had plans on leaving. I had a school bus I converted to run on vegetable oil, and I was planning on doing a a tour with my girlfriend. We're on our way from San Diego to New York, and uh, I could not go back and make the court date. I was like, I I I can't come back in three months. I'll be gone by then. I'm supposed to leave in a week. So I got into uh, the bus and left, and I think uh, four years later I come back. Right. and it's Christmas time, and I'm visiting my mom, and I take out all of her faucets in her house, and for Christmas, I was going to replace all her faucets. So I drive to my friend's house to borrow a wrench because my mom didn't have any tools, and the police pulls up right behind me, checks my name and my ID, and puts me in the car, and they book me. And I'm sitting there in the, in the jail. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning now, 
and a bunch of people in there for DUIs, CPS, like Child Protective Services, and right. a couple of things. And they're going around the table, like, what you in for? And like, well, <laughs> I didn't hit, I didn't hit that girl, you know. And they, they come to me, and like, every, you know, everybody's in there for some pretty serious stuff. I, you know, I'm like, like, what you in for? And I couldn't say obstruction of the sidewalk. Right, right. <laughs> well, did you make up a story? <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, yeah, Murder. I did. I, did. I said, Murder. I said, I said, I was, I was juggling fire, and they go, "Oh man, you're crazy." <laughs> I, I said, "Give me your milk." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not that crazy. <laughs> then I uh, balanced the checkerboard on my nose, and everybody clapped, and we all had a great time after that. <laughs> there you go. So even in prison or in jail, juggling does come in handy. Sure does. Well, you're kind of a I don't want to say a wild character, but you're definitely a guy who's been on the streets a little bit, lived on a little, little bit of a wild side. In fact, one of your one of your gigs at Summerfest, uh, they hired you, but not initially, because initially you just snuck in. Is that right? Yeah, I was. Um, I just came off of a tour with a group called Big Bang Circus. Uh, it was a circus sideshow freak show. When I was eighteen years old, I went out to Ireland. I came back. I was broke. I was trying to make money. I met Harry Anderson. Did all that, and then uh, I realized I had a little bit of debt from. Uh, car accident I had before I left Ireland. Uh, I paid off my debt and I told my dad, I said, dad, I'm going to go live in the streets in New Orleans and be homeless. <laughs> my dad said, oh, I'll just drop you off. <laughs> okay. Good luck with Dro that. Yeah. Dro drops me off. And I ran into a group called Big Bang Circus, which is a circus sideshow freak show. And I went backstage and there was this girl that was naked getting watermelon rind rubbed all over by a guy who looked like Rasputin. <laughs> and I, okay. And I, was, I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, what the hell am I getting myself into? Right, right. And I asked him if I could join their circus show. And they said, okay, well, meet us in Tallahassee, Florida. We'll consider it. Mm. So I get to Tallahassee, and they were surprised to see me. And they're like, oh, meet us in Athens, Georgia. We'll consider it. Oh. And I get to Georgia, and they said, all right, well, you can come with us. We did Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. The bus broke down. I, uh, they couldn't take me anymore because they had no more room to transport me. So I hitchhiked to Milwaukee where I was going to meet a friend of mine who I helped sell his comic book at the San Diego Comic-Con as a kid. Right. So I came four months late after traveling at the Circus Sideshow. And I uh, just got my act together. I was like kind of doing a little bit of juggling and uh, hacky sack together. And I went out to the streets of Brady Street, which is kind of like a hip area in Milwaukee. And I went to Art Smart's Dart Mart and Juggling Emporium. And it's still there today. It's like oh. a juggling dart and uh, disc, disc golf shop. Nice. And I uh, sold me my first set of clubs, and I started setting up. I had, like, dreadlocks at the time and a beard, and I wore a three-piece suit with no shirt on like any Carney Street kid would do. Okay. And this big, tall black guy with dreadlocks comes up and says, all right, what you got? I'm like, all right. So he shows me his tricks. He goes, well, I'm, I'm a mime. We could do an act together. Let's go sneak into Summerfest. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> okay. Three, days, three days later, I'm like, what are we going to do? He says, we'll talk about it on the way there. So we both have clown makeup on. We go to the back gate and we say, uh, we're on the kid stage in 15 minutes. And they go, where's your pass? I go, I have no time to run back and grab my pass. I got to be on that kid stage. So he radios to someone on the radio. Nobody responds. And he just lets us in. Right, right. So we came back every day to that gate and he'd <laughs> always see us coming and he'd just let us in. Right. Next year, it was the same guy. It was the same guy. He was like, oh, so good to see you again. Let's us in. This time... 
the I was doing shows by the Marcus Amphitheater. I don't know who's playing that night. And I was doing the straight jacket escape where I juggled in the straight jacket. And I finished the show, passed the hat, and this short black guy comes up with two big black security guards. And he says, I hire all the entertainment here, and I've never seen you before. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've, been wa- I've been watching the security video. You've been drawing a pretty big crowd. Here's your audition. Do it again. Hmm. So I did the show and I cracked the joke. I'm like, oh, I want to thank my dad for coming to see the show. So I go to the short black guy while I'm in the straight jacket. I'm like, dad, give me a hug. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he walks away after that bit. I go, oh, man, I screwed up. Right, right. But nobody, nobody stopped me yet. Yeah. So I'm cleaning up my props and stuff. And lady comes by with a, a clipboard and she says, we'd like to hire you, but you can't, we can't pay you. You can pass the hat. Right. I'm like, okay, okay. So he gave me some parking passes, and I started coming in every single day. And it was a, it was like a, a 11 day festival, and I literally did shows every single day. And Vic sees me walking through the basketball court one day. He goes, Jeff, come here, I got something for you. And he hands me a check for 1,250 bucks. And he says, This is what I pay my highest paid street performer, and I think you deserve this. Nice. You work just. just as they do. And this is the first paycheck I ever got for street performing or even doing anything like this. And I was like, this is a whole new world just opened up after that. Well, that's a classic move. Nice move. So, so now I'm on the production staff at Summerfest and I hire all the entertainment for the parade, parts of the Coles area, the kids area, and we have at least 17 shows going on in the 11 days. So it just shows you, you can start by sneaking in, but if you got the goods, if you're, if you're contributing... And you know how to perform, you can end up uh, not running the place, but but being part of the of the organization. And it goes back to what we were talking about before. It, it it's because they like you. Not that I call him every single year asking about, sure. hey, are you going to hire me or not? I call him and we're friends. And I invite him to our weekly poker game, like nickel dime quarter poker with clowns, magicians, and jugglers. Like like he's he's part of the pack now. He's part of our friends now. And he's it's it's great to be able to see how you could just be a friend of someone who's definitely has lots of connections within the city and be able to help us find so much work throughout it and get all my friends hired as well. Well, it's a good tip in that no matter how good your show is, nobody wants to work with a dick. You know? Mm-hmm. If you're a jerk it's, it's a very small community, and it is the idea of being friendly, of being nice, of being – we're all in it as a team together bringing entertainment. And it's not about the egos or the money necessarily. It's about the art and what we're doing in the truest sense. Right. But the money's good too. <laughs> so. But, you know, it's, it's not like the heyday of what Summerfest used to be. Right. From what I hear – all the greats used to do that. Gaza would do that show. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Cobb would do it. And all these great other performers would be, they have such a great budget and they just cut it. And it just happened to be, there's not many people in the circus community in Milwaukee. I was, uh, I kind of started my own booking agency, book your next event. And I started hiring all my friends for all these different events and festivals that came from this one experience at Summerfest. Yeah. I just saw you, you worked with Steve Langley on a gig. He's a friend of mine and you had organized a, uh... A show, and he said you did a great job bringing all the performers in. So, that's a good fit for you. You know, show business. You got to have the show. You got to have the business. And where where is the future going to take you? We're we're kind of at the end of our talk here. It's gone very fast. Where do you see the future going for Jeff Marsh? I have the opportunity to work with a grant writer right now, and I am looking to do something along the lines more of the humanitarian performing stuff I've been doing lately with Clowns Without Borders. 
Nice. So I've done I've done a lot with Clowns Without Borders. They offer laughter in areas of crisis, natural disasters, and war zones. They've taken me to Chiapas, Mexico, all over Nicaragua, to the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. And I've uh, teamed up also with uh, Emergency Circus, which is uh, originally based out of New Mexico and now in Bellingham as well. But they go to orphanages and senior centers and lots of other places that necessarily wouldn't have a high-grade quality of performers or let alone be able to see this type of entertainment so i'm kind of looking into like uh maybe like the performance care part of it being able to try to find my own avenue of social circus in a way Mm -hmm. you know i had a circus school for a couple years in milwaukee and it was really hard to be able to keep something that like that going without like a huge amount of money to back ourselves up for advertising and uh, insurance and safety equipment and just even finding a space that would work Right. Let alone keeping keeping that fa- space full of students, you realize some classes work better than other classes, and then it's like so. I wanted to find ways to continue teaching people uh, about circus arts because if everybody in the world juggled, there'd be world peace. Because we're throwing things at each other for fun instead of aggression. Well, well, that's a that's a great place to end, <laughs> Jeff. Man, that's a really yeah. wonderful philosophy, a wonderful goal of bringing this entertainment to these these places and clowns without borders. I I really. Wish you the best with that, man. That sounds fantastic. Oh, I have one yeah. more question. I have one more question. I'd be remiss without asking this final question. Now, at the festival in I, at, the, at El Paso, there you're very proud of your of your juggling skills, of your performing, but also you're very proud of a particular person in your life, uh, your lovely girlfriend April, and she was charming and lovely. And before we go, for all the other jugglers out there, how does a juggler? attract and win a lovely girl like april oh man just as all the other performers are probably now listening in their cars driving down the road doing their multi-hour drives to their trips right now i imagine you're all doing that right now listening to this (laughs) all you gotta do is all you gotta do is remember stick with it as long as you stick with it and you're a good person good things will come by i think cynicism is probably one of the least favorite qualities i think people have in themselves and as long as you're a good person, you will go far. Nice. Words of wisdom from the last vaudevillian circus tycoon, the great Jeff Marsh. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Dan Holtzman. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 36, my conversation with Jeff Marsh. Let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA at juggle.org. Learn more about the organization, their festivals, their merchandise, and so much more at juggle.org. Let's thank me by going to my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. That's braindrizzles.com. Also, visit iTunes, leave a five-star rating, because that would help and it would make me feel good. All right, all you Drop Everything listeners, go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.